So, retreats are a sacred time, a rare opportunity to look deeply. We don't do this very often for most of us. It's as if we've all been called to this place by divine appointment together here. We listen to some inner voice that said, come and be quiet and listen. Remember. Sometimes when I'm really quiet, I often tell friends this, and it's sort of funny, but also incredibly uh, sacred, is that I can hear the sound of a drum. And sometimes I stay up very late in meditation. Sometimes I like to sit up all night. And in the distance, I'll hear the sound of a drum. And that drum, for me, represents this remembering, this coming home. It reminds me to listen, to wake up and pay attention, that the school of life is in session. Also reminds me that I'm part of this great human family and part of all of creation, with all of its beauty and tragedy all of its suffering and all of its freedom. I'm a part of that. We are a part of that. Often I always joke that meditation centers remind me of hospitals. We're all here getting well together and the teachers are like the nurses running around and helping everybody and everybody has their individual treatment plan. A little more walking for you, a little less for you, sit here, metta for you. And what we're doing here is getting well. We're restoring our sanity, remembering our humanity. And so our job here is to remind you and ourselves at the same time that the present moment is the entry point to spiritual awakening and healing. And we say this in many different ways, over and over, talking to ourselves, talking to you, (laughs) remembering together, oh yes. Eckhart Tolle writes in his book, The Power of Now, he talked about his experience. He says, thoughts stop, the mind becomes silent. What shines through then is the energy of our being we can dive much deeper into this vertical dimension of time and discover more about our true nature. To dive into the present moment is also the goal of meditation. The present moment is the entry point or the main portal into spiritual awakening. So our goal here as teachers and supporters is to help you all keep the mind balanced and equanimous so that the medicine of truth can penetrate deeply.
it can go as deep as possible. Because truth is medicine. It's powerful. And we have this precious human life, and how do we want to live? More and more over the last 14 years that I've been practicing meditation, I've seen the value of this life. Oh, this is precious because I can use this time. One of my favorite poems is The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. She writes, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't exactly know what a prayer is, but I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down into the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. And so an answer for me is to wake up, to be free, to grow. And tonight what I want to talk about is this quality of equanimity very important. Equanimity is one of the most sublime emotions of Buddhist practice. It is the ground for wisdom and freedom, and it's the protector of love and compassion. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and ill will. And equanimity is on many of the classical list of teachings. So it's one of the paramis, the 10 paramis that we're talking about this retreat. It's one of the four Brahma Viharas. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And it's talked about again and again and again. So it's pretty important, this quality of equanimity. The Pali word translated as equanimity is upeka, meaning to look over. It refers to the equanimity that arises from the power of observation, the ability to see clearly without being caught by what we see. So it's, it's pretty important, um, and we cultivate this. When developed, such power gives rise to a great sense of peace. 
great sense of peace. We develop this quality through our mindfulness practice. Coming back again and again, every time you take a step, every time you open to something that's difficult. Through meditation, this quality grows day by day, moment by moment, step by step. Thich Nhat Hanh writes this about meditation. He says, to meditate does not mean to fight with a problem. To meditate means to observe. Your smile proves it. It proves that you're being gentle with yourself, that the sun of awareness is shining in you, that you have control of your situation. You are yourself, and you have acquired some peace. So an aspect of equanimity that is important is a quality of acceptance. Acceptance and also surrender. We need to learn to accept every experience into our awareness, allowing everything in. When we refuse to pay attention, when we sort of retreat into a withdrawal stance, we suffer. We suffer greatly. So our practice of mindfulness is learning to greet all moments of our experience with equal respect. This is not easy. With equal respect. This is not our normal way of being. There's a poem I like that describes it by David White. It's called Enough. Enough. These words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. So on retreat, it's It's difficult. Today I talked about retreat as purification. This is the path of purification, but you don't get to choose what's going to be purified on retreat. (laughs) I'll take my mother issues in a nice container over here and leave the divorce or whatever it is that is difficult, right? But on retreat, we open to the most painful and blissful aspects of our life, and as if we see it in 3D, high definition, right? It just starts to play out, so all of our repetitive thoughts, all of the painful stories, the difficult emotions like grief and rage, envy, fear, our traumas and memories, all the unskillful actions. Have you noticed things you've said and think, ah, ah, there's this kind of inner cringing that happens on retreat. This is not a bad thing, actually. The countless lies that the confused mind tells again and again. The pain of our families and communities, the ethnic groups we belong to, the pain of the earth, itself we feel deeply in our bones. This is what we experience. 
Also the body itself begins to open. We feel all of the sensations that maybe we haven't allowed ourselves to feel. On retreat, we go into what I call in others the underworld of our consciousness. The underworld. (laughs) We open the locked doors and windows that have been shut for many years. Open them. We courageously go into these places, and I think it's important that we do go into these places. Wendell Berry. To go into the dark, to go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. And we find that the dark, too, blooms and sings. How is this possible, we may think? How's all the muck (laughs) in my mind? How can this bloom and sing? As wise equanimity grows, we begin to see that everything has value. All of our experiences have value. Our most painful experiences are important experiences when we learn how to surrender into them. Grist for the meal, the mill, our sacred compost, you could say. Our suffering allows us to learn and to open, to grow. And this quality of surrender and acceptance is critical. A couple of years ago, I was going through a very difficult stage in my life. I had ended uh, a very, very long-term relationship with someone who I thought I would marry. And it was my own decision, but I I decided that that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I had all these different problems uh, with different family members who were suffering. And and it was uh, a whole period of just enormous grief that was moving through that I thought I had resolved. And I wasn't able to deal with it very well. It's almost as if everything came down on me at one time. It was just raining down. And I was so overwhelmed. And I thought at that time I had to be a stoic Dharma teacher and and as if I didn't have these feelings anymore or something, you know. So I had this image when I would go teach at our meditation center in Oakland, like I had it all together, right? But there was this cracking glass you could hear, you know, underneath. And so I was just so overwhelmed one day and I I decided to go visit um, a teacher of mine who's a healer and sort of this great shaman and wise being. And I drove three hours up to Santa, way up in the Santa Cruz mountains where he was visiting. And I was sort of crying and, and sort of just overwhelmed. And so I got to his home and he's a very quiet person, very, does not say many words. <laughs> so I don't know if I wanted some hug or whatever. Well, well, I didn't really know. So he saw me come in and I was like, oh, then this and then that. And he's just sitting there very still listening. And, and, you know, and then this happened. And you know, I'm going on with my story of just telling him all these things that I'm so upset about that I have no control over. And so 
he didn't say anything, which is pretty typical. He just looked at me for a long time, and as I continued, and he said, to, asked me at one point, you know, kind of stopped and said, why don't you just lie down? And I lied down. And um, as I was continuing, kind of rambling and teary, and, and, and he finally, at one point, just picked up his flute and started playing this song. And I was going, okay, can you not sing? You know, I'm trying to share with you all my... <laughs> traumas here, I need support, and he started singing the song, and it went something like this. I surrender to my sorrow, I surrender to my life, and he kept going on and on, saying, I surrender to my cat, I surrender to my dog, I surrender to the sun, I surrender to the stars, I surrender to my wife, and I was very resistant, like, I didn't want to hear this, I, 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 but suddenly I started listening, I surrender to my... And I started after five minutes, he went on, I surrender to the trees, I surrender to my feet, I surrender to, I surrender, I surrender, and I got it and started laughing. I surrender to this experience that is so painful right now, that some level I just didn't want to be there. I didn't want to weep, I didn't want to feel grief anymore, I didn't want to feel this loss of this relationship, I was trying to hold it all at bay, no, build a little wall around myself. And I got that message deeply. And he went on for some time, and then I started singing it with him. And we started drumming and saying, I surrender to the, I surrender. I drove home in a much better state. That was what I needed to do. Just accept that this is what is happening right now. So it's this important quality of accepting our experience accepting our emotions, accepting ourselves, accepting our grief, our sorrows, our mistakes, our longings, our desires, accepting, surrendering. At one point I got tired of judging myself and I started being more interested in understanding what was happening. That's the breakthrough. I don't want to judge this, I want to understand this even when it's complicated. Compassion is important. It's another aspect of equanimity because there's no other appropriate response to pain than compassion. You know, initially from my teacher, what I wanted was a hug or some kind of acknowledgement, but the compassionate thing for him to do was to help me surrender with love. There's a poem by Rumi that I like, and it says, a pearl, I think I can remember it, a pearl goes up on the auction block. No one bids, so the pearl buys itself. <laughs> That's what we have to do, we have to buy ourselves in some way, right? Love ourselves. So as a child, I had to develop a lot of equanimity in my household. It was very difficult. I knew as a young child that it was going to be a hard one when I really got to know my parents. <laughs> I thought, okay, this, you got to be really strong here. <laughs> and um, my father, I talk about this a lot, but my father was addicted to cocaine. And so most of my early life, it was a kind of seeing him in and out of our home. And we lived in this 
apartment building uh, right on the East Long Beach Compton border. So it was an area where there was a lot of tension, a lot of fighting. Uh, there was always stuff going on in our neighborhood. And uh, my siblings and I would sit in our window. We weren't allowed to go outside because of, it was just not safe. And so we would look out of the window at all these dramas going on. And then there was my father who eventually left. And my mother um, was a beautiful person, but really wasn't sure how to raise children. She was still very childlike. And so it's a little scary when you sort of realize that this person doesn't kind of know. I think some parents fake their way through. So like, they put on this good front like they have it all together. <laughs> But when your parent just gives up and you see that, you think, uh-oh, okay, well, we got to figure this out here. And so I think what happened was at a young age, I developed a lot of equanimity with all of the changes and the moving and the traveling and here and there and people coming and going. And, and this quality started to, I started to be able to deal with a lot of adversity. I started to see, oh, this is an aspect of life. And also to develop compassion for all the people around who are suffering and were doing their best. I also started to see deeply that everything is always on time. It's always on time. And those lessons that I learned when I was young, I, they've served me so much now. Oh, they were on time. Also in my life, I'm greatly inspired by those with tremendous equanimity in difficult times. Like Jack was talking about um, um, Nelson Mandela getting out of prison after 27 years with, and then with this great forgiveness and this open-heartedness after all that he had endured. Oftentimes, people out of their greatest suffering achieve and accomplish so much for the world. You see people, the founder of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, out of her great tragedy of losing her daughter, she formed an organization. You see this all the time. I have a dear friend who just left. I'm kind of sad that she left. She was visiting from Thailand for two months, and she runs a project teaching yoga and meditation to women who have been sex trafficked as children, kind of kidnapped. And, and it's just the stories are, are they're unbearable. But this is out of her own experiences of that happening to her as a child. She then uses that and connects to other people and has started a beautiful program, so inspiring, to help these other women. Christopher Reeves did so much for research in his period after he uh, hurt his back. He used that. He used his suffering. And so this is another aspect that it's not just useless, our, our stress, our struggle, our story that we all have. We all have this. We can use this. Without the winter, there'd be no spring. Rumi writes in his poem, Bird Wings, your grief for what you've lost lifts a mirror up to where you're bravely working. Expecting the worst, you look and instead, here's the joyful face you've been waiting to see. Your hand opens and closes and opens and closes. If it were always a fist or always stretched open, you'd be paralyzed. 
your deepest presence in every small contracting and expanding, the two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as bird wings. So this is important to see that on retreat, we go through this opening, this closing. In life, there's this constant opening and closing. How are we with the closing? You know, in the opening, we feel bliss and love and connection. Ah. And then the winter comes and it starts raining, it's dark, windy, maybe stormy. How are we with that time? It's important to appreciate that balance. Another aspect to equanimity that's very important, and this is going to seem funny at first, but this is the biggest insight, the most important thing that you could ever deeply, deeply understand, myself included. Are you ready for this great teaching? (laughs) This is important. This is a big one. Things don't always go our way. (laughs) We don't always get what we want. This is really important to really take that in, just for a moment. Turn inside for a second. Things don't always go my way. I don't always get what I want. In spite of being told this again and again as a child, it's difficult to accept. There's a part of us that thinks, but why not? You know, we kind of go through our life trying desperately to get what we want, right? We get a new car and then someone keys it up on the side. We, you know, there's all these things in our life that, oh, if I could just get rid of this. It's important to recognize that everything happens to everybody. <laughs> when our equanimity is strong, it becomes a protection for us. And the Buddha talked about this protection. Equanimity protects us from what is typically called the eight worldly winds. So the winds of change blowing all the time, all the time. And he talked about this particularly eight. So it's four sets of pairs. And I just want to talk about them briefly because I think they're important. So the first pair that he talked about in these first two worldly wins. And he said, of being a human being, you will experience this. This is not just for some, this is for everyone. It's not personal. So praise and blame, right? We love praise. You know, we love praise. And then there's the blame that comes, right? We get blamed. I don't know if I should tell you this, but the cooks have uh, praise and blame equanimity practice board in the kitchen. <laughs> so all those beautiful notes that you write after you love it. Oh, the Indian food was so good. Thank you so much. I felt so comforted and you really got me and I loved it. I ate three bowls. Thank you, thank you, thank you. They stick that up. Ah, oh, praise side. Praise. Why did you make it with all that garlic? It was horrible. Didn't I tell you I'm allergic to garlic? How could you? It was terrible. Read the note, not so happy, blame side, right? <laughs> and that becomes their practice because it couldn't, they couldn't survive otherwise unless they made it a practice. It would be too painful. 
teachers often also. Some, some people hear a Dharma talk, they love it. Some other people hear it, they don't. This is our life, this constant praise and blame. The Buddha says, accept this. Come to understand that this is the way it is. People hated him. His own cousin tried to kill him, discredit him. Every great spiritual being in this planet who's ever walked has been demonized, attacked, ridiculed, and then loved, had their devoted following. So it's this balancing act. The Buddha says, understand that this is part of life. The second two worldly winds are success and failure. Success and failure. I want to read you uh, a little story. It's called Maybe. Once upon a time, a peasant had a horse. This horse ran away. So the peasant's neighbors came to console him for his bad luck. He answered, Maybe. The day after, the horse came back, leading six wild horses with it. The neighbors came to congratulate him on such good luck. The peasant said, maybe. The day after, his son tried to saddle and ride one of those wild horses, but he fell down and broke his leg. Once again, the neighbors came to share that misfortune. The peasant said, maybe. The day after, soldiers came to gather the youth of the village, but the peasant's son was not chosen because of his broken leg. When the neighbors came to congratulate him, the peasant again smiled and said, maybe. So I like this story because oftentimes when things don't succeed, we don't really understand and we can fight that, not understanding that sometimes when people fail, it opens another doorway. So it's not really a failure at all. Or oftentimes people succeed at something that they desperately want only to figure out, oh, I don't really want this after all. So this whole success and failure, it just becomes intertwined. What is success? What is failure? These are just concepts. The other third set of the eight worldly winds, you could say, is pleasure and pain. Pleasure and pain. You could look at that in many different levels. But the body itself, if you just take today, let's look at just today. How many pleasant bodily experiences have you had? Probably many, right? How many painful ones have you had? Maybe more? Some people more, some less? <laughs> this is what the Buddha is talking about. It's not personal. Sometimes when we feel something, we take it very personally. My pain, my body, Forgetting that everyone in this room had the same experience almost. This whole world. So this changing dynamic of pleasant, unpleasant, pain, pleasure. Sometimes we have a headache, we feel good. Other times we suffer. Okay. But how are we with that? Can we have some equanimity with that? Oh yes, this is the body. This is the body, and it changes moment to moment. And then the last of the worldly winds 
is fame and disrepute. Fame and disrepute. It's very easy to see this one in our culture, how there might be some kind of popular celebrity that everybody loves, and then not long, they fall and everybody hates them. And this must be really shocking for them on some level, beloved and hated. A story about that. Hakuin was a famous Zen master in Japan. He lived in a remote village and was often praised by his neighbors as a man of pure living. Once a beautiful unwedded girl in the village was found pregnant. Being a very conservative village, the family was furious. The girl refused to confess who the man was, but after many beatings and harassment by her parents, she finally named Master Hakuin. In great anger, the girl's family confronted the master, but all he would do was calmly say, is this so? After the baby was born, it was brought to Hakuin, and he took very good care of the child. He begged for milk and many other things the little one needed from his neighbors. By this time, Hakuin's reputation was completely destroyed, but that didn't seem to trouble him. He was often scorned by the villagers, but that didn't bother him either. A year later, the girl's mother finally broke down and confessed the truth. The baby's father was not Hakuin, but a young man who worked nearby. The girl's parents went to Hakuin and at once and begged profusely for his forgiveness and to get the baby back. Hakuin willingly gave the baby back, and all he said was, don't worry about it and go home. So that's quite a lesson, you know, granted he's a Zen master, right? So we might not have responded in quite that way. But the, the point of it is that if we understand that our sense of inner well-being is independent of these eight winds, we are more likely to remain on an even keel in their midst. There was this movie a few years ago that I like a lot. Um, I don't know, maybe it was 15 years ago. It was called, I'm sure some of you know it, The Gods Must Be Crazy. And with an African man, and he finds this bottle, and he goes on this whole journey through the movie. And, and it was so funny witnessing his perception of reality through all these events uh, that are very different than the rest of the people that are they're all sort of on this mystical journey as he's trying to get rid of this bottle. And he goes through all these different things and these truck rides and animals trying to get them. And, and he has this real sense of equanimity about all these dangers of near-death experience. And that reminds me of this equanimity that we can have, that we can kind of, yes, things are hard, but can we stand steady in the winds of change and recognize, yes, there's something that is constant, that's beyond the outer circumstances. Another aspect of equanimity is the understanding of impermanence. Because this is part of the eight worldly winds, that everything is fluctuating, changing. One day you're up, the next day you're down. It's all a house of cards, actually. It's all impermanent. It's all changing moment to moment. Part of the stages of insight on this path is that you start to see faster and faster, very clearly in your meditation, impermanence. 
And there's actually a very intense stage that you see where you see clearly how fast everything's changing. And it's as soon as something arises, it dissolves, arises, it dissolves. You feel as if the ground is dissolving from under your feet. And you start to see this. And oftentimes, if you don't have a lot of equanimity, it's terrifying. It's like a glimpse into the telescope and seeing very closely what looks like something scary. But it's important to understand that everything is in constant change. Sylvia Bordstein is one of, I have to say, is one of my favorite teachers here. I just admire her so deeply. She told me this funny story. When she was very young, uh, Sylvia had uh, four children uh, before the age of 25, actually, and they were all very young. And she was at home with them all one day. And it was one of those days when all of them were having a tantrum, she said, at the same time. And they were inconsolable. They didn't want juice. They didn't want crackers. They didn't want to be picked up. They didn't want to be left alone. They just wanted to scream and cry. And she said she started to get overwhelmed. And so she thought, okay, well, everyone's screaming, crying. I've asked, I've tried. So she went into her kitchen, and they were sort of followed behind her in this line of you know, crying children. If you have children, you know that that can sometimes be frustrating. Uh, and she said she got out some yellow paint, and over this entryway into her kitchen, in Hebrew, she painted, this too shall pass. <laughs> That's so wise that she would think of that in that moment where other people would just lose it. She said, this is temporary. One day this will all be over. This day will be over. This moment will be over. And so she said she got up on the chair and it's bright yellow paint. And of course, as she's painting, her children stop crying. What are you doing? And she gave them a Dharma talk about impermanence. <laughs> Explaining how everything passes away. I just love that story, that she is so wise. It's just very young, hadn't even started practicing in that way yet, but already got, this is just a moment in time. Can we be that way? She was able to have equanimity because she so understood that. that oh, why am I going to get upset? In an hour, this knee pain will be gone. In five minutes, this sorrow will pass. This anger will dissipate. This fear will go. Impermanence seems so obvious, but we don't really get it. So we see this flower. Yeah? See flower. Now we know deeply that this flower, if I leave this flower right here in a period of a few days, will start to decay. Right? So we won't have tears about that. We all have seen this many times. Flowers are impermanent. We get that, right? We don't expect a bouquet of flowers to last two months. It's impossible. This nature is to start to decay. But when it comes to our mind states, we imagine that they are eternity. We wake up in a bad mood and we think, this is how I'm going to be the rest of this entire retreat. Get me out of here, right? And we suffer, we, we shrink and we, we believe that this is a permanent, lasting, right? Lasting. Understanding that things are impermanent is critical. It's freedom. 
Ah, you can meet any situation if you know it's temporary. Yes, okay, I can be here for this. This is how it is right now. I teach many teen retreats, um, including the retreats at Spirit Rock, um, the teen retreat I'll be teaching in a couple months here. Working with children and working with teenagers is a great example of impermanence. It seems about, uh, so we take 50 teenagers for about six days. It seems around day three, there's this day where it's the big meltdown day, where tears, tears, crying, whatever's going to happen of some letting go happens on that third day. And so oftentimes all I'm doing is just holding people through the process. And obviously sometimes my shirt used to be wet with just tears. And it was just one of those days. And sometimes people who would come to the retreat would get afraid of that, that were new. Everybody's upset and crying. I would say, oh, this will pass. Watch by lunchtime. And sure enough, the sun would come out, the same teenagers sobbing, sobbing, everything. A few hours later, they're all laughing, singing. It's important for people to see that because we're afraid of intensity. We're scared of the underworld because we feel we'll get stuck in there forever. We forget that winter passes, the seasons change, we come up. I want to read you this um, part from this little piece by Jarvis J. Masters. Jarvis is on death row at San Quentin, and he became a Buddhist many years ago, and he's written beautiful books, and he's just a very inspiring person. He has this to say about impermanence. He had an insight into it, and it helped him. He says, understanding impermanence, that things are here today and gone tomorrow, really helps. No matter how bad something is, you can remind yourself, damn, this won't last. Then when it doesn't last, you can laugh and say, I knew it. What goes around comes around, and what comes around doesn't last. Everybody gets their turn. The police jump on you. The light goes out. There's a roach in your soup. My only real hope is to stay in my center, not wishing for something good or fearing something bad. It's very freeing, because if good things happen and you get attached to them, you'll suffer when the bad inevitably comes. You have to learn to accept both. True freedom. So, in spite of the changing nature, we could still find a lot of peace and happiness if we just, again, let go. The other aspect of equanimity is the lawful unfolding of life and that this universe is lawfully unfolding, that there's causes and conditions to everything. We can still live in peace. The Buddha writes, live in joy, in love, even among those that hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. Look within. Be still even among the troubled. Look within. Be still. Free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. So it's important that we see that things are happening lawfully, even when I don't understand it. I was talking to some other teachers today, and we were talking about the Mother Earth, and I was thinking, 
I don't understand what's happening with the planet, the destruction. With my equanimity practice, I have to tell myself, I don't need to understand that things are unhappening lawfully. They're unfolding due to many causes and conditions that are so vast, so intelligent, I couldn't possibly understand what's happening. So it helps me let go. Also, understanding that things are interdependent is important. True spirituality is to be aware that we are interdependent with everything and everyone else. Even our smallest, least significant thoughts, words, and actions have a real consequence throughout the universe. If you throw a pebble into a pond, it sends ripples that create other ripples and other ripples and other ripples. This is also the beautiful thing when you purify your heart and mind. That creates a ripple that goes out and out and out and out and out. One moment of mindfulness leads to another moment of mindfulness. So our practice, our practice is the cause for awakening. We're setting that in motion now so we can live with a little bit more gratitude. We can complain a little bit less. <laughs> There's this great uh, story of a Zen teacher who with her very last breath, in the tradition of the Zen teachers, they say their pithiest, most profound teachings for their last breath, you know. So here she is, you know, that last breath, students all around. Her last instruction, they, she said was, Thank you, and I have no complaints. <laughs> Thank you, I have no complaints. What a ride. What a life. So, practicing on retreat. Let's bring it a little bit more down to our experience here. Practicing on retreat. Every moment here is an opportunity to practice equanimity. A Zen master lived in the simplest kind of life in a little hut at the foot of a mountain. One evening while he was away, a thief snuck into the hut only to find there was nothing to steal. The Zen master returned and found him. You have come a long way to visit me, he told the prowler, and you should not return empty-handed. Please take my clothes as a gift. The thief was bewildered, but he took the clothes and ran away. The master sat naked, watching the moon. Poor fellow, he mused. I wish I could give him this beautiful moon. So we, when we're here in retreat, we practice dealing with our own minds, developing equanimity, particularly around what's called classically the hindrances the five hindrances that come and go, these different energies, these polarities that happen. So often we have on retreat is we get very strong desire. This is the mind that looks like this. I must find a latte somewhere in order to be happy right now. And then we go looking for something to satisfy us, right? So it's this desire. I must have this meditation cushion that I saw somebody with. I need, it's this mindset of, I need something else in this moment to be happy. That's painful. 
It's actually the root of suffering, this desire. So notice the mind of desire when it comes, the wanting, craving mind. As you sit here, it comes like this, right? One moment peace, the next moment craving, wanting. The idea is to be with equanimity, to sit with that. We don't have to act on it, right? Desire arises, desire passes. It arises, it passes. So be on the lookout. The Buddha talked about these as things that hinder the mind from seeing clearly. So the opposite of desire, aversion, right? It's the mind state that says, I need to get rid of this in order to practice. It's the opposite in many ways, right? So I need to get rid of my roommate snoring. I need to get rid of this happening. I need to get rid of this. I need quiet. The rain's too loud. The frogs are too loud. I need to, I need, you know, something. I need to get rid of this food. I need this kind of food. It's the diversion. It's the no. It's the screaming no at experience. The verse of mind is kind of funny in a way because you can see it gets so worked up and dramatic in the mind when you find yourself getting on this whirlwind, flying around, often when aversion's high in the energy field, they start sending out a lot of notes. <laughs> Managers need to do this. The teachers need to do this, right? And so we get taken over by that. But if you could just sit with it, it too rises and passes, rises and passes. It's an energy that takes us over. So be on the lookout, desire, aversion, Desire and aversion. This, the third and the fourth ones are ones that have to do with energy in the body. So restlessness. Intense restlessness and intense sleepiness. So we talked a lot about sleepiness today. Many interviews people talked about, oh, falling asleep, sleepiness. But other people talked about this restlessness. Restlessness is the energy that makes you want to scream and go running out of here. You just can't sit still any longer. It's too much energy in the body not enough concentration. And this is another just mind state that comes, this energy, and we learn how to balance that. Literally on one retreat, I was at a three-month retreat, and I was reporting to Joseph about this restlessness that was killing me, I said. <laughs> he said, die of it then, die. <laughs> I remember leaving the interview going, I will, I, will. I could. <laughs> my first long retreat. Meditation is kind of boring sometimes. You just have to get used to it. <laughs> this, and the energy of restlessness is just a lot. It's shaking up a Coke bottle. Too much in a small container. So if sometimes you feel that restlessness, go out, take a walk, expand your mindful, expand your awareness. There's lots of ways and techniques that we can work with that. And then sleepiness is the other. We talked a lot about that today. These are the hindrances that come. These are energies that will visit you again and again. They will knock on your door all the time. If you meet them with awareness, it's no problem. If you meet them with equanimity, it's no problem. Ah, sleepiness, welcome. Conk, you know. <laughs> and often on retreat, you see people doing this bob and the weave, <laughs> sigh sometimes. You just accept it. You didn't ask for that. It's just suddenly it's arisen, right? Suddenly it's here. 
If you could control this, you would have bliss every moment. Trust me, these energies arise by doing their own life. Do you get this? They're happening on their own. That's the part that you have equanimity about. I didn't order this. I didn't order hatred this morning. Here it is, right? It just comes. These are things just doing its nature unfolding. And the last one is uh, doubt. And doubt is particularly thorny because it can take you away from practice. You start having self-doubt, doubt about how is following my breath helping me in life? I don't know. Maybe I should go Sufi dancing. This isn't the right time. You know, this doubt comes up. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And eventually we stop practicing. So it's important to recognize the mind of doubt. This, ah, this is a great hindrance. So important to see. So these mind states keep coming and while we're on retreat, we can practice by developing equanimity with them. We can also practice by developing equanimity with every aspect of this retreat. That whatever's offered to us on the food table, ah, I accept and surrender. We might not get to interview with Jack. Everybody, <laughs> you know, that we might get a newer teacher. Can we accept that? Can we accept every aspect of our experience? Can we accept our roommates? And can we accept the noise in the back of the room? And can we, every moment, can we resist? Can we use this as our equanimity practice? Can I be with what is? Can I love what is? So I encourage you to use that. We begin to give up our preferences. Really quick, funny story called Two More Aisles. A man observed a woman in a grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss and the mother said quietly, now Monica, we just have a half of an aisle left to go. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl really began to shout, Candy! And when told she couldn't have any, began to cry very loudly. The mother said, There, there, Monica. Don't cry. We're only two aisles left to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately went to clamor for gum and burst into a horrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help how noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, I'm Monica. My little girl's <laughs> name is Tammy. <laughs> That's the way it is sometimes to be equanimous. When we see ourselves behaving in that way, there's this higher part of us that can say, oh, now, now, okay. We can be with that. And what happens is over time is a faith develops inside of us that we can, that we, after we've gone through so many of these cycles and we've seen impermanence and we've seen the storms raging and we've sat in them and we've been okay, that there's this great faith that begins to develop inside.
This faith was developed quite young in me because I saw that I survived so many difficulties. I thought, oh, if I could be with this and that, if I could remember the truth in the midst of all this insanity, there was this deep faith uh, that started to emerge in me that I will be okay. This deep okayness. It's a beautiful quality. One of my favorite poems is called Unconditional by Jennifer Wellwood. She writes, Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant, jewel-like essence. I bow deeply to the one who has made it so. And so we grow and we grow and we grow. And we get and grow in our faith and we make mistakes. And you know what we say? I forgive you. I forgive myself again and again and again. And there's a way that we can go through this retreat, ride this wave, and, and it becomes fine what happens. And there's a joy in the equanimity. And even when it's hard, we think, can I open to this? Yeah, I can. And if it's difficult, the good thing is you have all of us to support you in that, in that remembering, that remembering. There's always a silver lining and compassion is so powerful. So powerful. I think I'll just end with another poem that I love a lot. Hukasai says, Hukasai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, building, people, fish, mountain, trees, wood is alive, water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside of us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. Doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. Doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda 
or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It just matters that you care. Matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. Matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Love, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. Well, thank you very much for your attention. Maybe we'll just sit for one moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.